You are listening to Uncommentary. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com, and when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention Uncommentary, uh, on some books you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation, but when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check him out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come, come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time. And then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you. And he can handle it uh, right there through your email. And uh, it's really, really encouraging to him. And so I encourage you to check him out. Most of you who are regular listeners know about my uh, upbringing in the South. I've talked about that some before and I uh, have had some, I think we've had some episodes that even deal with uh, the South and the Confederacy and some things like that. Um, but one of the things that uh, I came to learn about as an older person was this idea of the lost cause. Um, I don't know how I didn't learn about it growing up, probably because uh, I was immersed in it and didn't even realize that it was a thing. Uh, but the lost cause is this idea that was um, propagated by a guy named Jubal Early after the Civil War had ended. And uh, he wanted to basically uh, redeem the loss of the Civil War, the massive destruction, the um, near obliteration of Southern society, um, the Sherman's March. He wanted to recast all of these things in a way that would make the South look not as defeated. And so through the uh, erection of memorials and a mythology around Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and the great, the, the generals of the Confederacy and kind of recasting uh, or spinning, if you will, to use a more common term, um, why the war was fought, uh, taking away the, the central impetus of slave society and the right to own human beings and the, the way that it was embedded in the Articles of Confederation. And instead, turning it to a kind of a generic states' rights and complaint about tariffs and uh, hatred of Abraham Lincoln, who wanted to take control and these other things, kind of shifting that focus away from historical accuracy and creating this mythology uh, that really elevated the South, uh, Southern culture, uh, and the, the roles of people like Robert E. Lee uh, into a type of civil sainthood. And so um, that was common, and it still is, and it's still believed by an awful lot of people. Uh, well, my guest today had to come to a reckoning in his own life about that. Uh, Ty Sigley is a retired Brigadier General from the United States Army, and he's written a book about his experience growing up in the South and how he was, uh, how he wholly embraced this lost cause mythology of Southern culture and what led to the Civil War and what happened after the Civil War and this whole repainting of slavery as this not-so-bad thing uh, that the slaves actually enjoyed, kind of the um, mammy and gone-with-the-wind type uh, thing. So his book is called Robert E. Lee and Me, and we're going to talk about that today, and he'll tell the story uh, in his narrative of growing up and then how he came to realize uh, that he had a lot of flawed thinking. So this is uh, my interview with Ty Sigley. 
he has quite a resume, uh, served in the U.S. Army for 36 years, retiring as a brigadier general. Is that like equivalent to like half a star or one star, or is that like starting up the generalship? Where's that, where's that in the, in the, in the, uh, procedure? Yeah, there is a, it's a one star. And so okay. one star is brigadier general, two star major general, three star lieutenant general, four star general. Wow. Okay. Very good. Well, I didn't even make general. I made nothing general. I made no, I, I wasn't in the military. But that's <laughs> that's very remarkable to me. Uh, Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton College, as well as a New American Fellow. Numerous books. Um, so I'm going to. Get, this has nothing to do with our talk. What did you think about Ken Burns' documentary on the Vietnam War? Oh, I think it was great. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, Ken Burns tells stories really well. Mm-hmm. He situates race at the center of them all. Um, and I, I mean, it, it had lots of, of people that were saying one thing or another about the problems with it, but I thought he did a good job. I think he does a good job on all of them. I mean, some of them, like this one on Civil War, seems dated now, yeah. but uh, I don't know anybody that does those things better than he does. Okay, good. Uh, Professor Emeritus of History at West Point, where you taught for about two decades. Ty Sidgley, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so now I've given everybody the the actual bio tell everybody a little bit about yourself as far as whatever you want hobbies family just what interests you and lets people know who you are sure well uh i'm married Uh, i've been married 30 years and uh, my wife sherry is the hero of this book she's the (laughs) one that really helped me uh uh, change my view and uh and she is probably the person that uh she tells the truth more often than anybody else i know and for growing up as, as a white southerner i learned to lie early and uh, she helped me see the truth. I have two boys uh, who are both uh, one married, one engaged that live in New York City in the tech industry. And uh, I don't get to see them enough and can't wait for the end of this this plague so I can get to see them more. But I don't have any grandkids yet. So if they're listening to me now, I'm still ready for grandkids. I haven't been able to work on that, figure that one out yet. <laughs> well, I am so glad to have you uh, on uncommentary today especially because of a book that you've just written that's about to be released i think in march is the the release date no no it's out it's out it was out last week oh it's, uh, it's for sale now very good all right um robert e lee and me a southerner's reckoning with the myth of the lost cause so this is a big deal for me um a lot of my listeners know that i was raised in the south and um have dealt with a lot of these issues thinking through them uh, civil war stuff and racial stuff and am still growing uh, as a matter of fact in a lot of these ways um, but you're the first person that i've talked to who's written a book about how uh, your upbringing affected the way you looked at reality in the area of civil war and the south the confederacy so um start by by explaining what is the lost cause sure uh, i mean it's a great question so i because i didn't know it for for years but if you think about the South going to war, they went to war to uh, protect, defend, and expand slavery. Um, that's the reason they went. You can read their secession declarations. That's the reason they went. The only difference between the North and South, really, is one's a slave system and one isn't. And if you think about going to war to, to fight uh, for slavery, and they lost, and not just lost a little bit, they devastated mm-hmm. defeat. Sixty percent of the, of the South's uh, uh, wealth is gone, much of it in enslaved labor. And so they, they sowed the wind, and with defeat, they reaped the whirlwind. And how do they deal with this defeat? And really, it starts with General Orders Number 9 that Robert E. Lee uh, puts out uh, at his defeat. that says, I was only defeated by superior manpower and materiel uh, and money from the North, and these sort of immigrant armies that did it, and 
butchers from the north. So this starts it. It's a way to deal with defeat. But then that morphs over time into a way of, of, of ensuring white political power in the south and eventually across the nation. And it has a couple of elements. One, that the war was fought over states' rights, not over slavery. Mm-hmm. Not true. Second is that enslaved people were happy. That it was that that it was the best thing for them. It was they they were happy in their condition of slavery. This came out after the war, before the war and after the wars. What Jefferson Davis said, many of them said this, and it's in monuments as well. Not true, of course. Slavery is an abomination. Right. The the the, the next one is part of it is that Reconstruction was a failure, an evil failure, because black people were not ready for the vote or ready for high office. Also not true. Two thousand black men served honorably in elected positions, and we come up. We, we start uh, public education in the South during this period. Um, there, there's an enormous good that comes out of Reconstruction, particularly toward equal rights. But then, then after that, we see um, white political power come back through Jim Crow segregation, violent terror and lynching, Confederate monuments, the, and the system of white supremacy. And another aspect of it is that Ulysses S. Grant was a butcher and a drunk. Mm-hmm. Not true. Grant's the greatest warrior of the war. And at the top of that, the pinnacle, is the marble man. Robert E. Lee, the greatest soldier uh, in history, the greatest gentleman in all of history. And altogether, that is what we historians call the lost cause of the Confederacy myth, meant to sustain white supremacy in the South. I, um, I, when, I, when I read the words that Robert E. Lee was the greatest general like in the history of the world, I, my mouth just drops open uh, at the audacity of such a claim uh, and that people like actually think that that is the case even though he lost the war. Um, so you grew up in Virginia, I believe, or at least you were born there and your earlier years were there. Um, talk a little bit about how being from that cradle of the Confederacy, uh, so to speak, uh, formed the way that you thought. You mentioned reading books about Robert E. Lee and, and, and basically worshiping Robert E. Lee, and he was your, your hero. How did that affect the way that you viewed things? Well, I, I it, it did is that I wanted to be a Virginia gentleman that had that, that came with status. It came with, you know, khakis and blue blazer, rep tie. It came with power. Hmm. And I wanted status. And the person who had the most status in my culture was Robert E. Lee is the greatest gentleman that ever lived. Uh, and so if I was growing up, I would say on a scale of one to ten, I would have put Lee at eleven. Hmm. And even though I went to church every Sunday, I would have put Jesus at about five. Wow! So it wasn't as though I it wasn't as though I thought Lee was great. I had a reverential view of him, and so did much of my culture. And as you said, my first chapter book was Meet Robert E. Lee. Uh, <laughs> you know, I read Gone with the Wind in seventh, sixth, or seventh grade. Uh, all the I remember the uh, the other books that I read uh, made Lee the great the greatest man in history. Mm. And you know, in my house growing up. We had pictures of, of Lee and Jackson, both in Confederate uniform. We had a picture over the mantle of the four flags of the Confederacy. So we, these were seen as the honorable people. They lost, but they, they fought the good fight. They were honorable. And, and that continued on into, to where I went to school. So in, in, in elementary school, I went to Douglas MacArthur Elementary School for the first through the fifth grade. And then I was bused across town when desegregation finally was enforced. And what was the name of my segregated all-black school that I went to, Robert E. Lee Elementary School, named in 1961 to support uh, uh, white supremacy, to support white political power. 
That is amazing. And you ended up, uh, I think in your book, you talk about, um, you ended up across the street or across, uh, just across town from the high school. That is the centerpiece of the movie. Remember the Titans. I don't know about the timeline there, but, uh, that was in your hometown or near your hometown. Is that right? Oh, it was right, right across the street. So TC Williams, that we, that great Denzel Washington, uh, remember the Titans movie. Um, in fact, my dad knew, the white coach that was there. Mm. Uh, and, and, and we followed that just, un, we followed it absolutely. It was 1971, 72 when that happened and I was busted. So that was started the busing. Uh, in fact, what they did was they united three schools to put them together to create TC Williams, knowing that it would be a sports powerhouse as a way of uniting the city. But the problem wasn't the high schools, the elementary schools, which were segregated. So remember that, that, that even though Brown versus the Board of Education happened in 1954, the South had this thing called massive resistance, which started in Virginia, which said we are going to stop segregation, de- desegregation, integration in whatever way we can, whether it's through violence or whatever. One of the ways that it came to me was through the textbooks I had in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And those textbooks were meant to support the idea that segregation was the best way of doing things, that slavery was a good thing. And I remember my um, uh, my fourth fourth or seventh grade book, can't remember which, I will look this up afterwards, I don't remember what the heck I had then. <laughs> but what it showed, I mean, who knows what they had as a kid then. Right. But I, I look it back up and there's there's something called How the Negro, how, how, how the Negro Lived Under Slavery. And there's this ship that it shows, the cover picture of that chapter, and it has this family of four dressed in colonial finery. Um, the woman has her head down in her bonnet saying, oh my gosh, someone's finally taking care of us. And there's a white gentleman who is put clasping hands with a black man, all dressed in con- uh, colonial uh, finery. And you look, it looks like, oh, they're just coming off a princess cruise ship. Wow. But what this really is, is an African family coming from the Middle Passage, going from Africa into slavery. It's showing that they're going to be civilized by slavery, that they're in this social security system of slavery. It's monstrous. Mm. But that's what was written that I had in the textbook that was written in 1964, and I still had in the early 70s. So uh, y'all moved at some point from uh, from Virginia to Walton County, Georgia. I think this is your dad was transferred, uh, got a new position, and so y'all went as a family. And um, while you're in Walton County, you realize that there was some history there that was substantially grotesque that nobody ever talked about uh, that was in, that affected things even in when you were growing, which I guess would have been in the 70s at this point. Um, so right. talk about uh, talk about some of the things that you discovered that were true of the history of Walton County that you never realized, but you realized after the fact that this is this there's still an effect to this here. Right. I mean, so in fact, so we moved to, uh, to uh, Walton County, Georgia. My dad took a job as a headmaster of a, of a school that had only been found in 1969. And what I found was that uh, there were 400 schools that popped up throughout Georgia as segregation academies. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 they were there to because they couldn't stop integration any longer. And so instead of having white kids going to school with black kids, they formed these segregation academies, 400 of them. And so, I mean, I knew that there were no black kids that I went to school. In fact, Monroe, Georgia, where I was, was 50 percent African-American. And yet I didn't meet a black person, didn't talk to a black person until my summer job that summer. So it was a completely segregated city. I didn't even know that that, that, uh, the black people lived in a completely separate part of town. It was like, you know, no integration at all. Um, and, but what I found out when I went back and looked at, at Walton County was that the lynchings there were pervasive. It was a, a town that had, that had a, a political violence 
going back all the way into the slave era. Mm. But what I really didn't realize was that it was the site of the last mass lynching in American history, the infamous Moore's Ford lynching, where four, um, uh, two black couples, uh, including one veteran, were uh, stalked, uh, uh, ambushed, trapped, and slaughtered uh, by a posse of Monroe's white citizens. Uh, and and then, it, you know, it, and then nobody was ever even indicted. Nobody was even found for this. They had they had reams of FBI, a platoon of FBI people come to try to find it. And no one ever found it. No one ever found any. Nobody in town ever talked about it. Wow. And this level of violence was so endemic there. And I knew nothing about it when I lived there. It wasn't until years later that I read a book about it. And this was what what that Morris Ford lynching in Monroe really caused Harry Truman to launch the Civil Rights Commission, Mm -hmm. which eventually helped integrate the army and put us on a path towards civil rights. And it happened because of the lynching in my hometown that I knew nothing about. I felt so terrible that this awful thing happened in my town. And yet what was in front of the courthouse but a 20 foot monument to the Confederate uh, to the Confederate soldier. My goodness. You mentioned these segregation academies, and there's a there's a history that's become known over the last, I don't know, three years. And when I say become known, I mean popularly, that a lot of the, um, uh, what's the best way to phrase this without being too terribly inflammatory, um, the, like the Christian school movement, um, it has a history in, rooted in, these segregation academies. So a lot of the schools that were started as quote-unquote Christian schools were really started as schools that could be segregated so that they would be predominantly white or all white because black families couldn't afford to go there at all. And so uh, did you find in your studies that there was a relationship between what are co- called segregation academies and what percentage of them would have been marketed as, because they didn't market themselves as segregation academies. It's not like it was, you know, Holyoke segregation Academy. Um, they were marketed right. many times as Christian schools. Were all of them Christian schools? Well, no, they weren't all Christian schools. Uh, and some of them, you know, when I went to George Walton, I don't remember my segregation. I don't remember them saying that, but then if you look on there now on the website, there is absolutely linkage to Bible and to God mm-hmm. uh, in a way that, uh, that, that but they aren't necessarily all Christian, but they certainly lean that way. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're certain. And I remember, you know, as I was doing my research that when they started to integrate uh, downtown in Monroe in the in the mid 60s and they started having some protests about this, had to call in the National Guard uh, as uh, black people demanded equal rights. Uh, that you know what did, what was the response? Closed down the lunch the, the communal lunch counter, mm-hmm. um, and then the First Baptist Church in Monroe voted in 1964 to exclude black people from going to church there. So yes, this has a this this and, and you know this is there for the slave era. Yeah. I mean, if you think there was a, a Hal Cobb who was a famous Georgia politician, uh, governor from Georgia, uh, in the in the pre in the antebellum era, wrote that slavery is in in in, in uh, lead with what God says. And he, he wrote, uh, and, and many Southerners did at that time, that really slavery is the best system for all people. So it, there's a long history of support of linking slavery and segregation to God. Wow. You're listening to Uncommentary. My guest today is Ty Sigley, author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. And we'll be back right after this. Well, you've probably heard me mention already the new Uncommentary Book Club, and I wanted to give you a shorter version of that. I think my original running time was like five minutes. So here's the short of it. 
go to uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club. Uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club. No hyphens or underscores in book club. And you'll find all the information that you know uh, that you need in full array. So the short of it is this. Become a patron at patreon.com slash uncommentary at $4 a month. And that qualifies you to join the book club that's in partnership with Hearts and Minds Books up in Pennsylvania, my buddy Byron. So I want to encourage you to do that. You'll get a new book every month. It's you're, uh, you're buying from them. He and I will select these books based on what's coming out and what we believe will be of interest to this audience. Uh, I will post it in Patreon beforehand so you'll know what to expect. Um, and so you won't go buy extra copies of it. Uh, but this has the... I think this has the um, potential to be really encouraging. Uh, you guys can hook up via Zoom and have, have your own book discussions, all that kind of thing. So um, uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club for four bucks a month as a patron. You can be uh, you can join and I encourage you to uh, to take a look and invite your friends. Ty, I want to read you a um, an excerpt from a book, The Myth of the Lost Cause and Civil War History, edited by Gary Gallagher and Alan Nolan. This is from essay number nine uh, by Lloyd Hunter, The Immortal Confederacy, Another Look at Lost Cause Religion. And he references a speech given by Lawrence Griffith in 1906 where he says, quote, And when the ragged remains of an army of 600,000 Confederate patriots returned from a four-year's fight with 2,700,000 invaders to find their homes despoiled, their families hungry, and their estates dissipated, there was born in the South a new religion. They did not think it wrong to worship these ragged idols. With almost uh, religious zeal, they have given their scanty stores to raise monuments to their defenders, striving by word, pen, and printing press to make the world listen to the truths and learn both sides of that conflict. When you went to Washington and Lee University uh, for your college years, uh, you reveal in the book that you found st- something that's, uh, I mean, there's no way to say it other than a religious fervor with, and I even, I think you even say that Robert E. Lee was the Christ figure or the Messiah figure of this religion. Talk a little bit about what you found when you went to uh, Washington Lee College or university. Yeah, well, I, I went there because I did, I mean, I worship Ro- Washington and Lee as the ultimate Virginia gentleman. And, and I remember when we first got there, there were, it was all male at the time, and there were about I think, 340 of us in the freshman class. And we went into Lee Chapel, of course, named after Robert E. Lee, mm-hmm. and we all sat down in this reverential hush. One young man sat next to a plaque. I remember this. It said, this is the spot that General Lee sat during church service. Wow. So we were in this chapel. But I was raised Episcopalian, and uh, and there I know what Christian iconography looks like. You know, yeah. there's a pulpit, there's a place where the hymnals are, there's you know there's an altar, there's the apse of the chapel, the sanctuary. Um, you know, there are all these different things that go with the church. Well, none of it was there except the altar. And if you look in the apse, the sanctuary of the chapel, there's the apse, and and, and uh, there's the altar. But it doesn't. It's not a plain altar. It, on top of the altar is a statue of the recumbent Lee lying on the battlefield in Confederate uniform, hand on his sword, uh, blanket over him, but his, his, his legs uncovered. He was alive. He's just sleeping on the battlefield, ready to rise up to fight for his people, the white people of the South. And we call, we would go there to genuflect at, 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 uh, at General Bob, at, at, at Master, at, at, at Roberts, you know, where he was. He was buried down below traveler was outside uh buried that was his war horse his war steed mm-hmm. and 
people would come in and leave pennies by it, always face down. Why face down? So that one, that, uh, that, that Lee, who's buried right next door, couldn't see the hate in Lincoln's face. And two, so that Lincoln's face would have to kiss Traveler's butt. Oh so, gosh. you know, this, this is, this, I know, I know, it's terrible. But, but the, but Lee then is the Christ figure. And I went back through and looked at the speeches given there. And whether, you know, when, when he first died, the, the students at WNL, at Washington College, then renamed W. Washington Lee when he died, would stood guard for like 10 years over his tomb uh, to make sure that no one bothered it. The Virginia Military uh, Institute cadets would come by and salute him as he as they walked by. It was a place of reverence, and and it just got more and more. In fact, the chapel itself became a place of this reverence. Uh, and and if you go in there, I, I quoted a, a young woman who was married there that that went in there and said it felt more reverential in Lee Chapel than any other church she had ever been wow. in. Wow! So we absolutely worshipped at the Church of Lee. That is amazing. I mean, that is, it's just, it's actually terrifying in a sense that so many people in the South that would probably claim to be Christians are so swallowed up in this kind of cultural, uh, religious fervor that's dedicated to not just a lost cause, but a, but a losing cause, um, in in the Confederacy. Good night. Um, so you moved there. they, They were, go ahead. Yep. No, I mean, just I think it's absolutely true. And I, I, the, the, the Lloyd Hunter quote that you had there, this is a civic religion. The lost cause is a civic religion in the way that, that, that white Southerners, remember that they're white Southerners. Mm-hmm. Almost 40% of the South is, are, is, are African Americans. So this isn't that, as though everyone believes this. There are lots of people that don't believe it. But it is a way, the civic religion is a means of uniting the white South to enforce white supremacy and maintain white political power. Wow. So you left uh, and you eventually joined the Army. And uh, I remember you saying you didn't intend to make a career out of it. Is your book the one that talks about you had a friend or a relative that joined the Navy during Vietnam so that they didn't have to be drafted into the Army? Was that your book or did I read that somewhere else? No, no, that's mine. That's okay. mine. I, I knew nobody. Everybody I knew said that the Army was a place of miscreants. Remember, this was the era of, of Stripes, the movie Stripes. Right, you may right. remember that. <laughs> one of my favorite movies. Oh, it's great, isn't it? So Bill Murray in that, his worst mistake he ever makes in his life is joining the Army. And, and, and he, he describes the army as, Hey, baby, we're 10 and one, meaning we're 10 wins, right. one loss. And the one L came from Vietnam. So when I were entered the army, it still had the stench of, of mm. defeat. You could smell defeat when you did that. And one other story before we get to the army is I took my oath of office, uh, in Lee Chapel next to my idol, Robert E. Lee. I, I waited there. I've got a picture of me waiting to take that oath next to his portrait. And then I grabbed my commission surrounded by confederate flags and then i raised my right hand and took the oath and the oath that we take that everyone in congress takes that everyone in the military takes is their oath written in 1862 and it was designed to ferret out uh traitors confederates it Mm. is an anti-confederate oath so i took an anti-confederate oath surrounded by confederate flags that's amazing goodness so you eventually did join the army though. And, um, you found, uh, that you came to recognize a lot of the base names is, is about where I'm at in the, in the book that you uh, recognize Fort Bragg, for instance, and a couple of others, a Benning, I think was another one, uh, that were markers of the Confederacy. And we've actually been going through this in real time, uh, in the last six months or so where certain bills in Congress wanted, uh, there were, uh, parts in these bills that would have required, 
certain bases to retain their Confederate names uh, rather than have them changed. So when you got into the Army, you found there was still this lingering effect of the Confederacy. Talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, when I went to Germany, my first time was in Germany, we still had Lee Kasern, Lee Fort, uh, Camp Lee, named in German, that was there, named after in World War II. There were, there were tanks named after Lee in World War II. So I, I went to Fort Bragg, my first assignment, went to Fort Benning. I didn't think anything of it. I said, sure, they're great Americans. We should name them after that. It's in the South. But as I did more research about this, um, I, I looked into them. And let's say, let me give an example in Georgia, that John Brown Gordon. And Gordon uh, served in the Confederacy, never served in the U.S. Army. Uh, and and he was a, he was a great soldier, uh, wounded five times, shot five times in the Battle of Antietam alone and survived that. Um, but after the war, he became the founder and uh, and and head of the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia. Mm. And then in 1868, he gave a speech to uh, black Charlestonians and said, listen, um, if you demand equality, the 40 million of us white people will exterminate the four million of you in a race war. Wow. And as late as the 1890s, as governor and senator, he said, you have to vote for me to vote to extend white supremacy. Henry Benning, also in Georgia, never fought in the U.S. Army and was a leading secessionist from Georgia, fought so long, so hard to break apart the United States of America. And he was an ardent supporter of slavery. And, and A.P. Hill uh, was uh, let me go, George Pickett, I guess. I knew mm. him in Georgia. I mean, in Virginia, a famous for Pickett's charge mm-hmm. was a war criminal. He executed 22 U.S. soldiers at a, at a sham trial, uh, and then after the war, fled to Canada because he was afraid he was going to be brought up on a war crimes trial. Well, I didn't know that. He and Iris Polk in Louis. Oh yeah, he was he was absolutely uh, uh, guilty of, of war crimes, and and so was Lee because his army not only uh, uh, captured um, free black people in Pennsylvania for mm-hmm. sale back in Virginia, his army actually executed black prisoners of war in uh, 1864 after the Battle of the Crater. So I, I could go on on every one of them. I'll stop there and say, why did we name them? Well, remember that when you name something, you don't. It, it's more about who names it than it is who you're naming it after. Mm-hmm. So in this case, we named it those bases in World War One and World War Two, when the South was a racial police state. Let me say that again. Mm-hmm. The South was a racial police state. Black people protested this, but had no voice. Remember that the only role in government that black people had in the South was as defendants in trial. Right. That was it. Yep. Uh, and so they, they, yeah, that's it, right? And so they they, they really tried, uh, they, they protested against this, but the Army was a white supremacist organization. There, were, there was one or two black officers in the entire Army, and none of them were allowed to, to have to command white troops. So this was to bring white people together while the boot was on the neck of black people. And the, part of it was because the army was a white supremacist organization. Part of it was for local sensibilities, you know, local white political power. Right. In fact, in Tennessee, right where you live, uh, in Tull- near Tullahoma, Tennessee, um, during World War II, one of the largest bases in the South was Fort Nathan Bedford Forest. Wow. Uh, it was huge. Trained 250,000 U.S. Army soldiers there. Luckily, it went out of business in 1946. But it shows you the segregated and racist nature of both the Army and society during that period. Wow. So I don't want I don't want you to give the whole book away because uh, I want people to buy it and read it for for yourselves. It's it's really really good. Uh, but I do want you to talk a little bit about the pivot in your life. Uh, obviously, you didn't grow up with the two sides of the story. You grew up with one side of the story. 
Uh, this was reinforced all through your childhood and young adulthood. Uh, but at some point, you had some kind of, a, of an internal or cognitive reckoning with what you had believed the entire uh, time of your upbringing and growing up as the lost cause uh, you came to realize was really just a myth. How'd that happen? Yeah, so I, I mean, I went to grad school at Ohio State, and I knew the war was about slavery, but somehow I could still say that Lee was okay, and yet the war was about slavery. So it didn't it didn't get into my you know it didn't get into my gut. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't really bring it in. I, I in my mind I knew, but not in my gut. So one day I'm living at West Point, and uh, I'm living on Lee Road by Lee Gate in Lee Housing Area. Wow! And I start walking. I start walking to get some swag, some West Point swag for my family, and I go past uh, Eisenhower Barracks past Pershing Barracks, past Grant Barracks. We name our barracks after the greatest heroes in American history. Mm-hmm. And then I then I, I get to Lee Barracks. And there's a sign right there that says Lee Barracks. And I just stop and I look at it. I start wondering, why did we, what, wait a minute, why? Why mm-hmm. is there Lee Barracks? I mean, I understand Washington Lee University. Why here? And so I start running all over campus, um, looking for things named after Lee and finding them everywhere. And then I said, why? And I asked my bosses at the time, I asked the historians on post, nobody knew why. So I said, I got to figure this out. So I went into the archives and it was the facts that changed me. The evidence changed me. Mm. Um, uh, uh, the history changed me. And what I found was that at, at West Point from uh, in, in, during the uh, during the Civil War and up until 1898, really into the beginning of the 20th century, the Confederates were, were verboten. They were banished from memory. No Confederates in our cemetery, none on our great uh, Civil War monument. None in our memorial hall. They were, as as the graduate who built the memorial hall said, forgot the flag to follow false gods. Mm. They were guilty of treason. And the first thing it made me look at is then I read the Constitution. Treason is levying war against the United States. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. They killed U.S. Army soldiers more than any other enemy that we've ever had. And then so, so that the first part of the story is, is that I found all this. And then I became I started talking to people. But if you don't mind, I'll tell you the other story, which is sure. how did I start using my own story? I mean, I think because that's the other interesting. So one is my epiphany. The second is how did I start being open about it? So we, we had this memorial room that I'm chair of the memorialization committee. I had this idea to create a memorial room. We're going to put the hundred. The, the, we need something because we've lost 100 graduates in the war since 9-11. Wow. I mean, West Point is really, really um, uh, suffering from the, And that's not including amputations traumatic brain injury and other things. We needed a place for our heroes. And we had no central place for the names of the honored dead from the War of 1812 through the War of Terror. So I come up with this idea to put it on Memorial Room, and we get everything to do. Everything's ready, and then it's which name should go in. So I go before our, our leadership board, and I say, it can't be the Confederates because they fought against their country to destroy their country. Um, they abrogated their oath. They killed U.S. Army soldiers for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. And they can't go in. And, I, and they argued about this, and our leader at the time said, no, we need to bring people together. We don't want to be like the Sunni and the Shia. Now, what, wait a minute. Now, what, what, like, what year was this? Uh, this was 2012. We want to bring people together? <laughs> we want to bring people together. Exactly. Because guess what? They grew up with the same oh, man. lies that I did. Yeah. They grew up with the same, because there are a bunch of old white men just like me around there. And they grew up with the same myths and the same lies that I did. I had one senior leader that came up to me after this and said, Ty, stop talking about this. Listen, the Civil War and putting Confederates in our memorial room has nothing to do with race. Oh, my. 
I know, oh my, exactly. So I'm so frustrated with this. I go back and talk to my wife, who, by the way, is the hero of this book. Mm. And, and I say, and I say, Sherry, listen, I, I just gave this brilliant argument. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> humble, right? This brilliant <laughs> argument filled with facts. I bludgeoned them with the evidence and they, and they, they voted against it. It's just high. Nobody understands why you're so passionate about this. Mm-hmm. You're not, you're hiding your own story. You're not telling them about this. I went, oh, gosh darn it. Right as usual. Yeah. And I was hiding and she can't hide. She's got to tell the truth. And I don't, I didn't go up telling the truth, you know? Yeah. So then I started to tell the truth. And, and in fact, we don't have the names in there because someone told a, uh, a black graduate of West Point, not me for the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was accused of it, but it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> And, 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 and they, you know, they, this person did a freedom of information request. It's like the, 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 the proverbial junk hit the fan and, and they had an emergency meeting, which they never do and voted to exclude them. And these two generals are now really angry with me mm. because they don't understand why history is so dangerous, mm-hmm. but that's it. History is dangerous because it is political because it goes after our identity. If, um, uh, if, if we viewed the Confederacy like, uh, the post-World War II Germans began to treat the Nazis and view the Third Reich, we wouldn't be having a lot of these discussions. They, they would be consigned to a historical waste bin where they wouldn't be celebrated. I mean, obviously the fringes, the skinheads, and you've always got those folks like that. But as far as a cultural impact, uh, their cultural impact would have been washed away. And we didn't do that. And, man, it just it's payback all the time, it feels like. And we didn't do that because um, because they the South the white South did not accept that there was going to be ra- there there was going to be equality between white people and black people. Right. And this is all goes back to that. The purpose of the war was to create and ma- not to create to maintain a slave society. Mm-hmm. And when they when that failed, then they created new ways to to have racial uh, uh, oppression and to maintain political power. So the reason they didn't do these is because now, you know, in Germany, they wiped out the entire population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and but it, but they are there are some similarities there. They're both race based societies. They both fought a war uh, for those kind of racial ideologies. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's a, it's a good point. Um, and the Germans, I was at station there again uh, in 2016 doing some work uh, for U.S. Army Europe and, and talking about Poland and the Ukraine. And the Germans have have embraced this part of their history. And so they, it has fundamentally changed their society, and we have not. Yeah. And I really believe that the only way that we can prevent a racist future is to first acknowledge uh, our racist past. That's the only way for, for it's the only way forward. The book is a Southern uh, Robert E. Lee and Me, a Southerner's reckoning with the myth of the lost cause. My guest today has been Ty Sigley, right? Did I get it? Oh, you got it. You nailed it. Awesome. I was, I was, well I was about to mispronounce it. Professor Meredith of History at West Point. Uh, I highly recommend this book. It's a um, it's so insightful, and there's a lot in it that we didn't even talk about uh, for time. But, uh, man, I wish you well. Uh, are you online? Is there a way that people normally keep up with you? you have a website or anything like that? Yes, I have a website. Is is uh, uh, That's S-E-I-D-U-L-E. Uh, com. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Ty underscore Sigley and uh, and so you can you can follow me there too and uh, I'm you know I'm really excited about uh, the National Defense Authorization Act that's going to change the names of these bases and I believe in America that we can get beyond this uh, but we've got to be honest about our past first.
Fantastic. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.